hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Exco, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, <laughs> that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Exco, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Problem with all of this is their lack of accountability got another family attacked. Yeah. And they have to deal with that tragedy. I, I can only imagine the husband fighting for what he thinks is his daughter's life, his wife's life, his life, when this could have been stopped if they just paused and took a second look at it. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter, and today is part two of our two-part series with Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you're going to be very, very confused. So go back and come here and listen to part two. Should we just jump right into our story, Lex? I think so. I think everyone's probably eager to get to the culmination and the justice Absolutely. So that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn's names became infamous after the Vallejo Police Department accused them of orchestrating an elaborate kidnapping hoax. After Denise was abducted in the middle of the night, drawing comparisons between their case and the plot of Gone Girl. Of course, we all now know that Denise and Aaron were telling the truth. In 48 hours after she'd been awoken out of a dead sleep, abducted and sexually assaulted, the second phase of their nightmare began. Denise and Aaron's worlds imploded. They essentially became pariahs and were on the receiving end of a barrage of hatred on the internet and from all over the world. They became ostracized, not to mention they were completely traumatized because beyond all else, they knew their attackers were still out there somewhere, free to harm them and free to harm others as well. Following the abduction, Aaron and Denise both struggled with PTSD and sleepless nights. Denise suffered debilitating panic attacks and she was unable to return to work. She slept with a hammer next to her bed, convinced it was only a matter of time before they came back. And law enforcement was not investigating the case at all. Instead, the police and FBI were more focused on investigating Aaron and Denise. Weeks passed, and eventually months passed with little outward movement. But that wouldn't be the case for much longer. The next setting for this story is Dublin, California. It's a suburban city of San Francisco's East Bay in California, and it's about 40 minutes from Vallejo, where Aaron and Denise live. 
Then, more than two months after Denise's abduction on June 5th of 2015, Dublin police responded to reports of a robbery at a home in a quiet neighborhood on North Terencia Drive. The 911 call had been made by a 52-year-old woman named Lin Yen, who was hiding in the bathroom of her master bedroom as her husband struggled with an assailant. When police arrived, the couple and their daughter were extremely shaken. Here's what they said happened to them. It was 3.30 a.m. when Lin and her 60-year-old husband, Chung, awoke to find a masked man standing in their bedroom. He said to them four chilling words, We have your daughter, as he shined a bright flashlight and laser pointer into their eyes. The room of their 22-year-old daughter, Kelly, was just across the hall. He ordered the couple to turn over and put their hands behind their backs and telling them that he was going to tie them up. But when the intruder touched Chung, his survival instincts kicked in and he made a move. He took a swing at the intruder and a violent struggle ensued. Lynn seized the moment and grabbed her cell phone and ran to the bathroom to call 911. Chung yelled to his wife to go get a gun as she fled. And this was a clever move because the Yen family didn't actually have a gun. But his hope was that this scare tactic would prompt the attacker to flee and abort this plan. And it worked. He fled down the stairs and out the back door, but not before striking Chung in the head with a heavy metal flashlight. Chung was bleeding profusely when law enforcement arrived, and it would take several staples to close the wound. Thankfully, Lynn and Kelly were both unharmed. When the police canvassed the house, they noted that a screen for a window near the home's back door had been removed, which is likely how this intruder had entered. In the bedroom where the couple had been sleeping, the police found a black glove and three plastic zip ties. On a path behind the house, officers found, yet again, zip ties and a six-inch shred of black duct tape. Kelly, who was seemingly the target of the attack, found something on a cabinet near her room. It was a cell phone that she didn't recognize. So had the assailant actually left their cell phone behind? It certainly seemed that way. Unlike in the case of Denise and Aaron, the Dublin police took this case seriously. However, no early connection was made between the attack on the Yen family and Denise's abduction. The forgotten phone was a powerful evidence and would be key in identifying the suspect they were looking for. Dublin PD traced the cell phone to a woman who told them that it belonged to her son, a man named Matthew Muller, who coincidentally had lost his phone a day earlier. Muller's mother said that her son was staying at their family cabin up in South Lake Tahoe. If Matthew Muller was the guy responsible for this botched home invasion, he certainly wasn't your average criminal. So when police looked into him, Turns out he had served as a U.S. Marine for five years and graduated summa cum laude from Pomona College in California. Then he went to Harvard Law School. This guy was a lawyer. It's at this point that a Dublin detective named Misty Caruso got involved in the case. She was one of a group of officers who took part in the January 9th raid on a Lake Tahoe home where they believed that Muller was staying. The cabin was dark green with a white trim. It was surrounded by towering palm trees. In the driveway, there was a white Mustang that would be determined to be stolen. The officers broke down the front door and shoved through a blockade of chairs stacked on the other side of the door. There were random items all over the floor of the cabin. Like a set of crutches, license plates, clothes, a massage table, empty boxes, electronics, along with open bottles of wine and cans of spray paint. The suspect they were looking for was home. And when police busted down the front door, he didn't put up a fight. He actually kind of sauntered out of a back bedroom and cooperated with their demands, and he was casual about it. And Detective Caruso's job that day was to process and photograph evidence, and there seemed to be a ton of it. A black ski mask, 
duct tape, a rope, stun gun, walkie-talkies, a radar detector, and a device used to make keys. That's alarming. In the bathroom, there were makeup brushes, a bottle of NyQuil, brunette hair dye. They also found a blow-up doll, goggles, computers, hard drives, more cell phones, and beyond. They also found some odd things that may or may not have been related to this case or anything, including a penis pump, a spiked dog training collar, and some other kind of sexual things. The Mustang found outside the cabin contained valuable evidence as well, including two gloves, a receipt for a flashlight, a speaker, zip ties, burglary tools, and a metal flashlight. Eerily, the backseat of the Mustang had been removed. In the trunk, there was a blood pressure cuff, a camouflage tarp, and a mesh vest with a wireless speaker in one of the pockets. A BB gun, a dart gun, and a Nerf super soaker, all that had been painted black. Stuffed in a large duffel bag was a blow-up doll dressed in black. The bag also contained a military-style pistol belt, its pouches crammed with two pairs of Speedo swim goggles. Misty Caruso noticed that a strand of blonde hair was stuck to a piece of duct tape on the goggles. It was that piece of blonde hair that led Misty to believe that this case was bigger than the single home invasion that they were investigating, because nobody in that home had blonde hair. She believed that there had to be another victim. Right, and in examining all the evidence, they noted that a lot of it definitely seemed to be connected to the Dublin home invasion, but a lot of it didn't seem connected. Another perplexing element is that when the police examined the Mustang's GPS that they found outside the cabin and looked at the recent destinations that had been put in, there was an address for Huntington Beach, 400 miles south of Lake Tahoe. And it turns out that the Mustang itself had been stolen from Mare Island in Vallejo. Mare Island is a key location, obviously. Absolutely. And when the Mustang's original owner was contacted, he told Misty about the Mare Island Creeper. The Mare Island Creeper was a peeping Tom who was harassing and essentially stalking students on Mare Island in 2014. He would lurk on people through the windows of their homes. A couple of fed-up students eventually followed the guy one night and somehow discovered that the Creeper was a lawyer and ex-military. Right, and the students even did something with this information. They reported their findings to the Vallejo police, but nothing ever came of it. No surprise there. And the Mare Island Creeper seemingly disappeared and stopped their activity right around the time of the attack on Denise and Aaron. So beyond all of that, and as you know, this evidence is being examined, what's also occurring is a deeper dive into their suspect, Matthew Muller. And that revealed that he'd been a person of interest in criminal incidents in other California cities before. Two cases of significance in 2009 that had occurred in Palo Alto and in Mountain View, both in Northern California. In those cases, an assailant broke in and threatened to rape the female residents. In the Palo Alto case, a 32-year-old woman recounted that she was tied up, forced to drink NyQuil, and had surgical tape put over her eyes. She then told her attacker that she was a rape survivor. And apparently not wanting to victimize her again, the attacker aborted this plan and didn't go through with it. And it turns out that three weeks before the break-in, a police officer had encountered Muller walking near the crime scene late at night. They also learned that the victim, who was a student at Stanford, had attended an event that Muller had organized at Harvard University the previous year. He was identified as the primary suspect in the attack. However, there wasn't enough evidence at the time to charge him. The victim in the Mountain View case said that she was tied up, made to drink something that made her sleepy, and was blindfolded with blacked-out swim goggles. Sounds familiar. When she begged her assailant not to rape her, he didn't. 
Instead, she told authorities that he apologized and suggested to her that she should get a dog for protection. So Missy Cruz's gut instinct and dogged police work, let's be clear, is the reason that Matthew Muller was ultimately connected to Denise and Aaron's case. With her, her mind was racing and the puzzle pieces were all coming together. The Mustang being stolen from Mare Island, the Huntington Beach address in the GPS, the sedatives being administered to all these victims, and of course that blonde hair stuck in the black tape on the goggles. Misty believed that the blonde victim she was looking for could be Denise Huskins, who Vallejo had, as you know, labeled a hoaxer and a fraud, and accused her and her boyfriend Aaron of orchestrating this elaborate hoax. Misty had a hard time continuing to pursue it and look into it. People were telling her she was wasting her time. She's putting too much into this and basically we're trying to encourage her to stop. And she's like, no, there's a blonde hair. Like, I know that there's someone else out there. I have to, I have to do this. And just the fact that she did that, it should be seen as like just basic police work, but then basically from everything else we've seen, she went above and beyond compared to anyone involved in our case. Misty Caruso's first call to the Vallejo police was not immediately returned. Once she did reach them, they told her to call the FBI, which she did. And when she laid out the details of the botched Dublin home invasion and everything that they had on Matthew Muller, the tone and the attitude began to change. And soon, two FBI agents and a representative from the Vallejo Police Department arrived in Dublin to speak with her. And guess which FBI agents were sent to meet with the Dublin Police Department? Agent David Sesma and his colleague, Agent Jason Walter. And according to interviews given by Misty Caruso, when she met with the agents and presented the evidence, they looked visibly shocked and said something to the effect of, oh shit, but more professionally. And let's say like, oh shit is fucking right. The next evening, Sesma and his colleague asked Aaron for a meeting to discuss a quote-unquote break in the case. However, understandably, given all that had occurred and given the personal history with David Sesma, Aaron was suspected that this was a ruse and that Sesma was actually coming to arrest him, given that they had kind of been threatening to do that and take criminal action against them for the hoax. Because like up to this point, all they had done is worked to prove that they were liars. During the meeting, the agents showed Aaron pictures of the evidence that they found at the cabin, including Aaron's stolen laptop and the goggles with the blonde strand of hair. After months of agony and months of public shaming, it was hard for Aaron to really wrap his mind around the fact that law enforcement finally believed them and were no longer treating them as suspects. They showed Aaron a picture of Mueller and said, Aaron, we think this is the guy. And after giving Aaron the news, the FBI agents told Aaron that him and Denise were unable to tell anybody about the arrest, which meant at this point, they still couldn't clear their names, at least not yet. Finally, law enforcement had no choice but to accept that they'd been wrong about Denise and Aaron. But accountability for bungling Denise and Aaron's case would not be forthcoming. So much damage had been done in the wake of Vallejo PD's mishandling of the case and public slandering of these victims. And once the connection to Mueller was made, Denise and Aaron's legal counsel held a press conference where they called for apologies from the Vallejo Police Department. They said, today, the Vallejo Police Department owes an apology to Ms. Huskins and Mr. Quinn. The idea that in a short period of time, they decided it was a hoax that only works in Batman movies. In fact, members of the Vallejo Police Department really seemed to double down. 
In the days that followed, the Vallejo PD refused to retract their claim that the kidnapping was staged. They said, We don't know what the final outcome of this case is going to be. It's important that we don't jump to conclusions. And, in fact, no public apology was ever given. Rather, the then Vallejo Police Chief Andrew Badu wrote a private letter of apology to them, saying in part that it was now clear that what happened was, quote, not a hoax or orchestrated event and that the Vallejo Police Department conclusions were incorrect. The letter also said that the comments from Lieutenant Parks were, quote, unnecessarily harsh and offensive. The chief then promised the department would apologize in public when Mueller was indicted. But again, this public apology never happened. Right. And do we want to talk about what else this chief said? I mean, he's now saying, oh, this is abhorrent. This never should have happened. But like he, in fact, was fanning the flames of all of this. Yeah. Allegedly, he said to Lieutenant Parks, he told him to, quote, burn that bitch about Denise. Right. Right before that press conference where Lieutenant Parks said that they were squandering resources, that this is a orchestrated event. The chief was like, go burn that bitch. Like, go destroy her life publicly is what I make that to mean. It's just insane that how bad the police work and seemingly on all levels. I mean, this is a chief. He's no longer there, but we're talking about a, the detectives. We're talking about a lieutenant who's higher than him. And now we're talking about the chief all acting like fucking petulant children. Well, again, and it's like you would go back. It's like, these aren't just bad policemen. These are bad people. Bad like, people. That is a bad to say, burn that bitch about anybody is you, you're a horrible, horrible person. So and probably misogynistic. Well, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Very. <laughs> Nothing is surprising me at this point, which with what these what comes out of these people's mouths. Right. And following Mueller's arrest, Denise and Aaron expected the investigation to continue. I mean, great. His arrest is a huge relief. But what about the other assailants? Because, again, they were sure that Mueller hadn't acted alone. With her own eyes, she had seen the legs of more than one assailant, had heard more than one person rummaging around their home, heard people rummaging while Mueller was in there talking to them. Like, that's not something you invent. Plus, if we know the Mustang was there and Aaron's car was also gone, two people are driving those cars away, okay? So we're dealing with a lot of shit here that the police are ignoring. I'm going to jump in, too, about when they were both being questioned separately, when Denise and Aaron couldn't even talk to each other, they both said that there are multiple people there. That's not something that, like, they decided to make up after they kind of, like, kikied and, you know, got their story straight. Like, from the very beginning, they knew there was more than one person. Yeah. And for some reason, okay, they're like, great, we got Mueller. That's it. And it's like, no, He's no. Closed. Where are the other ones? And... Again, Denise and Aaron were told that Homie was one member of a black market kidnapping organization that held people for ransom for money. The guy spoke consistently about being one of three. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that it looks like the police want to wash their hands of the case. They want to call it case closed. Why? Well, maybe because they don't want to open themselves up to further liability. Maybe they already look so bad from a PR perspective for bungling just the one suspect. Oh no. And then they see, especially looking at Mueller's history, like he's been violent a long time since 2009. We're talking six years back. So if there are two other people connected to this, like they could just look worse. I mean, I really just think they were trying to mitigate the PR damage that had occurred. 
to them, they said, hey, no further investigation. We got the guy. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Going back to when you're in captivity, Denise, and Mueller was telling you about their organization and who could have also been involved. Do you have any other details that might have been left out of the documentary or even your book, like anything he was explaining about anybody he was working with? And did you believe him? I don't know. All this time, we just don't, yeah, we just don't have the answers. I can say like, we would hope that Mueller acted alone. That'd be better for, for everyone. If he did, we know there was people in the house. Did Mueller, was he in charge or was he answering? We don't know. I would think if I was masterminding it, I wouldn't want to be the one communicating and being one who gets easily caught. So I would probably have someone below me doing all the things that are more dangerous. Like that's usually how crime organizations are are run, but we don't know. And we're relying on Agent Sesma and the Detective Mustard and all these people to say, to find this information. So everyone's unreliable source. Like there's, there's not a single person who's telling us one thing that doesn't have their hands dirty in one way or the other. And we've tried, we've tried over and over again and, and it just won't happen. My lack of answer is just that like, I just feel so like worn down on the subject. 
like Aaron said, like, I just, I want to throw my hands up and be like, all right, fine. He did it by himself. Case closed. I don't have anything to worry about anymore. But the fact is we lived what we lived through. We saw what we saw. We heard what we heard. And we've been like gaslit by law enforcement and the media along the way, people who haven't lived through it themselves. And yeah, I mean, it very easily could have just been a couple people just seeing what they can get away with and not be some more elaborate, you know, organized crime. But yeah, I just, it's, I guess in a way I'm like deflated. I don't, I don't have the answers. Aaron and Denise's frustration is palpable, and parts of their story are still rejected by law enforcement, despite the corroboration of so much of their story proving that they told the truth. I believe there's three people involved, and they were trying to build, I believe, what they're saying in the, the emails for the most part. I mean, obviously, there's an exaggeration, there's some misinformation, but they really don't actually have a reason to make up more things, and they wrote those in such a speed that was accurate to our experience and would be very difficult for someone to have that all made up at that period of time. Like this wasn't a, it wasn't like writing a book where you get to edit and edit. Aaron told the police what he went through. I told the police what I went through. It was both the same thing. We came up with the same conclusions of how many people were there. It matched what was in the emails. Whoever wrote the emails didn't know what we told police, you know? So yeah, there's just too many consistencies in that. It's just frustrating that there just wasn't a follow-up. We never got the FBI coming back being like, you know what? I think that it was just him. Let's go through some of the details and and kind of hash this out again. Like we, they just dropped it. That was it. So who is Matthew Muller? The strange, elusive predator, a snake in the night who accosted people in their homes in their most vulnerable states. This monster behind the case that became a media spectacle. What drove him to do these things? How did he become this way? And you know the deal. To answer all this and more, we got to go back. Matthew Muller grew up in the suburbs of Sacramento. His mom was a teacher and his dad was a school administrator and wrestling coach. Muller was reportedly overweight when he grew up and was bullied and teased by his peers. At the end of high school, Muller decided to enlist in the Marines, telling family members it was because he wanted to get into shape. He was enlisted in 1995, and within the first 13 weeks of boot camp, he reportedly lost more than 50 pounds. Muller did well in the military, earning several medals and a promotion before being honorably discharged in 1999. When he arrived back home in California, he enrolled at Pomona College. Then in the summer of 2001, he traveled to Prague, for an academic school program. And it was there that he met his future wife, who was from Kyrgyzstan. They then fell in love, and she decided to come to the U.S. with Muller, and they got married. In 2003, they moved to Boston, where Muller began at Harvard Law School, and his wife attended Boston College. Then he took a teaching position at Harvard. During interviews with Muller after his arrest, he claimed that his problems with mental health began in 2008, when he started suffering from psychosis and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He also said that over the years, he tried to address his mental health struggles by seeing several psychological professionals and trying several medications. One doctor diagnosed him with major depression, with signs of mania. Muller struggled to stay on medication because he didn't like the side effects. Thinking that moving closer to home may improve his 
conditions. He and his wife moved to Silicon Valley in 2009, and he started a job at a large law firm, and he did immigration law and things like that. He said at this time he still struggled with his mental health and had suicidal ideation. Medication helped, but again, the side effects were brutal. He had insomnia, and that remained a constant challenge. In 2009, not long after Mueller and his wife moved to California, he reportedly disappeared after suffering paranoid delusions. He believed that people were spying on him. He thought people were waging psychological war on him. He feared his car was bugged and people were listening to him. So he traded cars with his mom, stocked up on supplies, and disappeared into the wilderness. He left a note for his wife that said, I'm going completely off the grid. No phone, email, credit cards, etc. So please do not try to track me as it will only draw attention. Eventually, Mueller did make contact with his wife and revealed that he was staying outside of Zion National Park and she picked him up. Right. And by the spring of 2011, Mueller's mental state seemed to be improving. And he got a job at an immigration law firm and registered for the California bar. But trouble at work began six months in after he copied thousands of data files from his law firm's network onto a personal flash drive. Then he installed a program that wiped his computer, and he sent a company-wide email announcing his immediate resignation. The firm sued him, thinking that Mueller had done this to leave and start his own law practice. But the real reason why he did this was because he believed that his boss was stalking and tracking him. He wasn't. But I just think that's so interesting, just his paranoia just becoming more and more Mm -hmm. evident. Somehow after this, he got a job at another law firm. I mean, he obviously didn't call for a reference, but he was terminated in 2012. He split from his wife in the winter of 2012 after she filed for divorce. They eventually signed a settlement agreement in which she was required to pay him $3,400 a month in alimony. She later testified that she accepted the terms only because Mueller continuously pressured and intimidated her, and he threatened to use his immigration expertise and contacts to get her and her family deported. Mueller's ex-wife also alleged that not long after the divorce, and this is a crazy story, her roommate, so she obviously moved in with a roommate after the divorce, came into her room in the middle of the night, one night terrified, and said that she'd just been woken up to a man standing over her watching her sleep. The assailant fled the apartment as soon as she woke up. At the time, this is a quote from Mueller's ex, at the time I had dismissed it as perhaps a nightmare. Her roommate, though, was absolutely certain it happened and very scared. And at the time, she did not think it could have been Matthew, but she's changed her mind since, obviously. In a downward spiral, Mueller was disbarred in 2013. In the summer of 2014, Mueller found a job at an academic learning center. He also started dating a medical researcher, and together they moved into a four-bedroom house with ionic columns on Mare Island. And the house they shared was only a block from Aaron's yellow house on Kirkland Avenue. Mueller began disappearing in the middle of the night, and his girlfriend was so disturbed by it that she called his mom to tell her. And this period of time was when the Mare Island Creeper was active just to connect all of the dots for you. Unsurprisingly, the couple broke up shortly thereafter. Then in early 2015 is when Mueller began staying at his family cabin in Lake Tahoe, which appeared to be his criminal headquarters and where he began gearing up to infiltrate the home of Aaron Quinn and to abduct Andrea Roberts. So something we definitely need to talk about is when Mueller was finally charged with the crimes perpetrated against Denise and Aaron. So the FBI released an affidavit outlining many aspects of the case, many aspects of their investigation even prior to Mueller coming onto the radar, and everything they did after Mueller came onto the radar. 
It's a really infuriating document to read, but it provides a wealth of information as to how they were thinking in these early days of the investigation. And you can draw some pretty stark conclusions as you go through it. And Jack really went over it with like a fine tooth comb. So what do you think the most important things to chat about are? Yeah. And also they go through this in Denise and Aaron's book in part three. And it's kind of the everything, all the sketchy, sketchy things in the affidavit. I think in general, the thing that really sticks out is as you're going through it, you know, it kind of talks about like the reasons why Mueller was the suspect, but then also they're including the reasons why that he is not and why Denise and Aaron could kind of still be considered. So it's it's obviously a very biased document when you're starting to go through it, which I'm sure when Denise and Aaron are reading through it, it's like absolutely infuriating, you know? Well, it's weird that they wouldn't like fully clear them in the document by this point. No. Like to infer that there's still... Aaron did a suspicious thing or there's this suspicious element like why is that fucking in there when you know that's irrelevant now right so kind of like starting off in the very beginning like in the document they're they're talking about Aaron's house and they note that it's very clean and it smells like it just had been cleaned like kind of inferring that Aaron had kind of cleaned up his mess after he allegedly in the beginning murdered Denise right it smelled of cleaner but then they they forgot to include the fact that the cleaner had just come. You know, they're they're coincidentally just not including that fact. Kind of just make Aaron seem conspicuous and and like a suspect. And, you know, there's a lot of things that they sort of like they're putting in the document. And one of the them that, that I thought was really interesting is that they said that, you know, Aaron took that polygraph test in the very beginning, when he was under duress, by the way, and who was being questioned for 18 hours. And after he took the polygraph test, the detective told Aaron that he failed it miserably. Remember, Aaron was just like so upset because he allegedly failed it. But in this affidavit, it said that it was unknown results. So you go back and you're like, okay, well, obviously the police are crafting their the puzzle. Like Detective Mustard said, he he creates the puzzle that he's that he's doing. You know? Yeah, and he's trying to coerce Aaron into confessing. Yeah, which is it, it, it's horrible. Yeah. Also in the affidavit, they were talking about, you know, Mueller was trying to contact the police or Aaron through his phone multiple times when obviously they turned the phone on airplane mode. And we kind of already talked about the absolute atrocity that that was. Mm -hmm. But one thing that that I thought was really interesting is they contacted AT&T and they were immediately cooperative because this was a kidnapping. And they ended up tracking Mueller's calls within 200 square meters of Hank Monk Avenue and Horace Greeley Avenue. And this is exactly where the house was that he had Denise imprisoned. So if his phone was off of airplane mode and actually working, they could have found Denise that night, like easily. Because they tracked it within, and there weren't that many houses over there. So they, if they had just turned his phone off of airplane mode, they so could So they have, tracked it afterwards. Yeah, they tracked the calls afterwards. To confirm. And then it's like, had they just believed them a little bit, then they could have rescued Denise from the sexual assault. Like, she didn't need to go through that. Yeah. And also, they all the FBI also knew that pizza was delivered the Monday night, the first night of uh, when she was being kidnapped. And this was during low tourist season in Lake Tahoe. So there's not that many pizzas being delivered. I'm sure there's maybe only one pizza place opened. And they could have easily checked with these pizza places to find the delivery person and find the house that they were delivering the pizza to. Like that is such an easy piece of evidence if they only looked into it that they failed to look into like yet again. 
And then also another one was Denise told police that she thought that her kidnapper drove a white Mustang and gave the exact location where she was released. Yet there was no surveillance footage. The only surveillance footage that they ended up releasing was her just like walking to her house. They didn't even fucking look for it. They didn't like, look they for didn't it. They didn't even look for it, which is crazy because again, it could have proved what she was saying. She also said that they stopped at a gas station around a certain time. They didn't check any of those surveillance footage places. And she knew the route that he ended up taking. I think it was the back route from Tahoe down to Orange County. And there was only like so many places that they could have stopped at. And they didn't look into any of that. He also got into a car accident on their drive. And the police didn't look into anybody that could have been the other person that they got into this car accident with as a witness. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Like that he got in a fucking car accident and had to be like, that's my um, blind wife sitting in the car with black goggles on. Like, how the fuck did he get out of that? I don't know. And he got out and talked to the other person as well. And they just, police never found that person to interview. Oh my God. There's just, there's so much. Another thing that was, that happened or that they talked about in the affidavit is they said that the female FBI agent present at her uh, SART exam said that there was no physical evidence of non-consensual sex. And the agent that they actually interviewed wasn't even the agent that performed the exam. It was an agent that was just like sitting in the corner. So they didn't see anything that was going on. So there's just so much that was wrong in this whole entire investigation and so many different times that they could have solved the case from the very beginning. Right. Super easily. It was just, it was horrible. But what I actually kind of wanted to talk about is that this is something that they didn't talk about in the documentary. And it was a lot of stuff about Aaron's ex. This is kind of all in the affidavit. We talked about it a little bit in the last episode, but one of the things was that right after the kidnapping happened, Andrea was given a bodyguard and she was given a special parking pass at, at Kaiser that was right in front of the parking lot where all of the rest of the employees had to park in, I think an auxiliary lot or something like that, that was farther away from their building. And she was escorted to and from her work from her boyfriend at the time. While at the same time, Denise and Aaron were given nothing. And again, like we're like trying to hold on to their jobs as much as they could, but we're met with a lot of defiance from Kaiser. So why is the ex given so much special treatment? while Denise and Aaron are kind of just like literally getting like shoved out of the way. Well, part of the reason is probably here in your notes, because I'm looking at Jack's notes on the affidavit, that that cop that she cheated on Aaron with was now her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So he's like probably coming around with his badge being like, I got to escort her to and from work, feeling like a big man. Yep. Thinking some narrative that they're telling themselves that this all, this whole hoax has to do with Andrea. All this is because Aaron didn't get over the, the, the breakup. Like all of this is because Andrea's number one, you know, like that's sort of like the feeling I get. Yeah. And that same cop, he ended up tweeting an article about an article saying that the thing was the whole situation was a hoax. And in the tweet, he said, no evidence to support claims that this was a stranger abduction or an abduction at all. Hashtag Vallejo PD, hashtag Denise Huskins case. Basically, like, inferring, subtweeting that, like, mm -hmm. he also knew it was a hoax. Yeah, but they, she still needs a bodyguard. Oh, you know? totally. And also, what I found really interesting in the affidavit is the FBI told Andrea 
about the arrest and the unsealing of the affidavit before the FBI told Aaron and Denise. And they also told Andrea updates about the entire case four times while Aaron and Denise heard nothing. So for some reason now the FBI is also giving her a special treatment. The cops pissed me off the most. She is just an interesting thread through this entire thing because she was tar- she's the reason that they were targeted at all. Yeah. I'm not it's not her fault, but it was for her, you know? Um Yeah. She didn't do anything wrong, but and then the Sesma thing, which is another layer of like botching the case and so yeah, I mean her role in this is complicated, but she certainly isn't to blame for any of it. No, not at all. It's just very interesting like when you sort of are putting totally all the pieces together about treatment and stuff like that. So, yeah, the affidavit is it's full of a lot of really interesting points. If you want to read through it, it is public. Yeah, highly recommend you go through it, but that was just cuz Jack has tons of notes here and that was like a couple that we actually went through. So yeah. see for yourself. It's fascinating. And it's public record. So you can just Google it and you'll find it. Yeah. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Three months after Mueller's arrest, he pled no contest to felony charges of burglary, attempted robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon in the Dublin break-in case. And a few days later, he was moved to Sacramento jail to await a federal trial in Denise and Aaron's case. Mueller was charged with kidnapping for ransom. He wasn't charged with the sexual assaults, the robbery on Aaron, or the burglary against Aaron because there weren't apparently, apparently wasn't a federal jurisdiction for that. And... Apparently, the reason for that is that that's not a federal crime. Apparently, those are state crimes. And we get to that, but in 2022, the state did prosecute him for those. But either way, there wouldn't end up being a trial in Denise and Aaron's case. Instead, the now 38-year-old Mueller pleaded guilty. At the sentencing hearing, Mueller pleaded guilty to the federal kidnapping charge and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Matthew was sentenced to an additional 31 years in state prison, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons lists his estimated release date as 2049, with Mueller serving both sentences concurrently. Denise and Aaron gave powerful victim impact statements at the sentencing hearing. We titled the book Victim F because of 
many of the things of that dehumanize us or, or made us two-dimensional and as people will read and get to the victim impact statement but to do the things that the media the police that the perpetrators did to us you you have to not see us as human or, or objects and so therefore victim f could be anyone and even when it was proven that this crime had happened the fbi asked if we want our names and affidavit and we said yes because we wanted to clear our reputations and they didn't listen to us and put us as victim F and victim M. So again, it's this, this system that piles on you and pegs you into a hole and then doesn't look at you as an individual in any way. And in, in a sense, we wanted to play off of that. And that's why it was really important for us to write chapters from my point of view and chapters from Denise's point of view so that people could get a sense of who we are and, and our individualism and what makes us unique and what makes our families unique. And that was the primary reason why we titled it that way. And I think in a way of taking the name, the victim name back, it was really important for us to not just stop when the crime stopped because all victims have a life after and it's difficult. It's a long road of healing especially then if you have to go through the criminal and court systems, it's a huge responsibility. And you'll read in the book, you know, our, our path in that and how re-victimizing it all was. So we, we wanted it to be really focused on the victim's experience and to our, our healing through it and our process of recovery. So I think a lot of people can connect to that. Two days after Denise and Aaron gave their victim impact statements, Aaron proposed to Denise at a barbecue with their friends and family, and Denise said yes. They had survived the unthinkable and had remained a source of comfort for one another through this entire thing. In 2016, Aaron and Denise filed a civil lawsuit against the city of Vallejo and its police department, as well as specific officers involved. The suit alleged a number of claims, including defamation, alleging in the lawsuit that their reputations were destroyed through an outrageous, completely unprofessional, and wholly unfounded claim of disparagement. They ultimately settled out of court for $2.5 million, with the Vallejo PD never admitting to any wrongdoing. If everything you've heard so far isn't aggravating enough, Detective Matt Mustard of the Vallejo PD was never disciplined for his misconduct in Aaron and Denise's case. Instead, he was named Officer of the Year by Vallejo PD only months later, the same year Aaron and Denise were abducted and attacked in their home. Like Insane. Not even like years later where it's like, oh, you're you're really turned it around, Matt Mustard. Like, you really made the changes. You're a better cop now. Like, we're going to literally, literally reward you yeah. right after you did something so horrific. And it's like, that's obviously the biggest, most high profile case of the year. You know what I mean? It's not like there's probably another one that outshined his work on this one. You know what I hate about it is it was probably like them doubling down. Like we support our oh, officers. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's why they didn't apologize. It's like, no, Matt Mustard's a good fucking cop. And we're going to prove that we don't care what you think. Well, there's a lot of corruption in the Vallejo Police Department, like aside from this, that like that kind of makes a lot of sense why they would double down and do that. Right. Obviously, it, you know, so Mustard was promoted to sergeant in 2018 after that. But like Jack was saying, he wasn't the only problematic officer at the Vallejo PD besides Lieutenant Kenny Parks, too. There were many. Um, and it seems that it's a department that's riddled with pretty frequent misconduct. I mean, just Detective Mustard 
gain officer a year or gain promoted when they, they change his lower standards so he could get promoted and retire with a bigger pension. I mean, this police force had officers who were bending the tips of their star badges to celebrate killings in the line of duty and literally literally calling it their badge of honor. And no one, as far as we, none of those officers have been fired. The, the only officer who got fired was the captain who found out about it and re- wanted to report it and investigate it. And he's a well-respected person in the community and we've met with them and he reports it to DA. She ignores it. He reports it to city manager because the chief of police wanted to bury it. And then they fire him. And so he had to sue for wrongful termination. Unfortunately, he's gone through hell just trying to do the right thing. There is a group of officers there that act like a gang and they punish and they're violent and they've killed people at a rate that's unacceptable. One officer shot, killed three people in five months and then was promoted. And this is what they do. And this is part of why we want to keep showing this because people deserve better. And Detective Muster is just like scratching the surface and he's lied on other cases. And I'm confident probably innocent people. And we just, in a way, feel obligated to just keep trying to shine a light on them. And hopefully there will be some level of change at some point. The unanswered questions in this case still linger on, and maybe they always will. Who were the others involved in the abduction? Why were Aaron and his ex-fiancee targeted for this abduction? How did Mueller pick his targets? And what motivated these horrible crimes? We know there was a financial component to this, but was that really a driving force at all? Or like many criminals we cover here on The First Degree, was Mueller driven by his thirst for power? Even if he was struggling with a mental illness, like there are things that drive these kinds of crimes. And we're left kind of in the dark about why Mueller did this. And if Denise and Aaron are sure, which they are, that others were involved in this case, what happened to them? And how did Denise and Aaron deal with knowing that the suspects are still out there? We saw other people. We heard other people rummaging through my kitchen and drilling holes. There is video footage of two white cars leaving Mare Island at the roughly the same time. I drove a white Camry. This was taken white Mustang. Moeller can't drive two cars at once. Moeller apparently signed a lease with a man on Mare Island. They said they looked for him but couldn't find him. And that's the end of it. So there was like countless leads that they decided to ignore and yeah, let the perpetrators go. So bad police work hurts good cops. It hurts public. And it's a shame. It's a like a complete stain on them that they will not look at the leads that were there at the time. The police should be ashamed of themselves and the FBI. Like, really, they failed you so miserably. And you talked about their lack of accountability and how another family suffered as a result. More families could suffer, right? Because do you think their lack of accountability allowed the other involved to go free and therefore allow them to commit whatever crimes they go on to commit? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so prior to even going through Mueller's electronics, one FBI agent told Denise that he's 98% sure he acted alone. So they did not evaluate the full evidence, which obviously these people have technological savvy, and they hadn't gone through it and goes, oh, 98% sure he acted alone because they saw a dummy, like a blow-up doll. That a blow-up doll can't walk. A blow-up doll cannot run a drill, can't go through drawers. Like thinking that a blow-up doll fooled us is infuriating it just gets so old at yeah. that point like um so they made their decision just like they made their decision about everything else this isn't my brother investigating this isn't some of my, his colleagues i know are incredibly smart 
diligent. They, they have not done their due diligence. This is a, the same prosecutor who did this case was telling our lawyers that he was going to charge us with falsifying police reports. So they're, again, they're unreliable sources. And to take their word for it, it is literally taking their word for it because Mueller went to Harvard. So therefore, Harvard has classes on how to be like David Copperfield. Like, I don't understand. Because Mueller was a Harvard-educated lawyer, the police basically pointed to his intelligence and military experience as the reason he was able to pull these crimes off alone. He is obviously can write well and, and did well in the LSTATs, but that doesn't mean anything. He's actually, I'm a bad criminal. So, you know, I called my phone when I was in police custody, or most likely called my phone. They came track of phone calls. So why, how do they know what Mueller did? And we find out he signed a lease with another male and they just don't find that person. Like that's would probably be, you know, one lead I would like to know. They decide to just let a perpetrator and multiple perpetrators go because it's the easiest route for them. And that's consistently what they did. What was the easiest route for them to go? I'm at the police station, blame me that I killed her. Denise shows up live, well, you guys did a hoax. Mueller's caught, well, you acted alone. They've never gone above the absolute, absolute bare minimum If the goal of abducting Denise was to get ransom money in exchange for her return, then why did the kidnappers release her despite never getting the money? Why has there never been anything clarifying about Aaron's ex-fiance's role in any of this? Had Mueller locked in on Andrea when he was prowling as the Mare Island Peeper, or is there more to that? If Mueller was part of a larger black market organization, it's likely the organization had its own reasons for wanting to kidnap Aaron's ex-fiance. What are those reasons? Why wasn't Mueller charged with the attempted rapes that he committed in 2009 in Mountain View in Palo Alto? Why wasn't he charged with the Peeping Tom incidents he allegedly committed on Mare Island if there was evidence of that? Why are there still so many goddamn questions looming in this case given the mountains of evidence collected? And why doesn't law enforcement not care about the answers to these questions? Or, hear me out, do they already know the answers to them and are keeping them quiet for other reasons? That's things that we obviously discussed in the book is like, how do you move forward in the unknown and not let some of these unanswered questions inhibit us from moving forward with our lives. And obviously we'd like to know the answers, but we know that's not going to be the case. You know, there was a lot of pressure from the very beginning to do exactly the right thing, like saying the exact right thing, behaving the exact right way. So then people will believe you and take this seriously. And we were under the eye of the public's judgment and, you know, we couldn't do or say the wrong thing. We had to stay silent for three years before we could finally speak and finally write a book. In 2022, the state filed charges against Mueller for the sexual assaults committed against Denise. He pleaded no contest and received 31 years to be served concurrently with his federal sentence. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, Mueller, who is now 46 years old, is serving his time at the Federal Correctional Institution in Tucson, Arizona. Denise and Aaron remain grateful that they survived this experience and that their relationship did as well. I got a second chance at life and I I appreciate that. And I just, I, I don't know, I guess I just keep calling upon all, all those people who were there with me then and even more so now. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Denise and Aaron got married near the ocean in Monterey, California in 2018. Among the guests were their attorneys and Dublin police detective Missy Caruso, who was responsible for linking Mueller to their case. The couple went on to have two daughters, the first of whom, Olivia, was born five years to the day that Denise was released by her kidnapper. 
I kind of wanted to end with just the fact that you both have built such a beautiful life together. You have two beautiful daughters and it truly is like the most beautiful love story that's come out of something that's so absolutely horrific. And the opening of the book, I don't know if this is the very first thing of the book, but Denise, it was a quote from you and it said, I would never take it back. Not if it meant I would have to live my life without him. And that is so moving and touching. And I don't know if you might have like a little bit to speak on that because your love story is the most unbelievable thing. Yeah. It's certainly been asked many times, which makes sense. You know, do you think you guys would have stayed together if this never happened? Do you think it drew you closer together? And yes. And yes. You know, I think we would have stayed together because we were meant to be together. I, I knew that early on in our relationship and it's a complicated situation because if I didn't know him, then this wouldn't have happened, but then I wouldn't have <laughs> my life. You know, I went through a good part of my adulthood kind of going, all right, like I, if I don't find the one, does that even exist? What does that look like? Is that just fairy tales? You know, and I just kind of started going, okay, I think that's not going to happen. And then I met him and it was just like our chemistry and our connection. You know, he's a, he's a true partner. And to imagine a life without that is far more tragic to me than than anything that we've overcome and we've overcome it together and we've got two beautiful girls too so like seeing their little spirits and everything it's just yeah I it was awful what we went through but I'm really grateful to have him by my side to sum up all of the lessons and takeaways you can glean from the story of Denise Aaron and what happened to them seems impossible but I'm gonna try the story is about survival the story is about a deranged criminal the story is about love The story is about abuse of power and police negligence. It's about media exploitation. The story is also stranger than fiction. The story is about empathy and the human experience. Most notably, this is a story with a happy ending. Again, thank you so, so much to Denise and Aaron for sharing their story. We appreciate you talking to us so much. If you want to dive deeper into their story, please pick up their book, Victim F. I've read it. It is absolutely incredible. And if you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first You can also follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. If you're looking for more first degree content and stick around tomorrow, we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Writing and research for this episode was done by me. Sources include Denise and Aaron's book, Victim F, Court Documents, The Atavist Magazine, The San Francisco Chronicle, The Vallejo Sun, and remember, our first degree guest is always our largest source. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That's our legacy. You 
ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.